Hello, hello, and welcome back to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house, indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today we are wrapping up our series on director Terrence Malick with a look at his most recent film, 2019's A Hidden Life. Bethany Worden is back again to help us finish what has been a wonderful podcast series. Stick around. Welcome to Art House Garage. Last September, we started a podcast series looking at the films of Terrence Malick, starting with 1978's Days of Heaven, followed by The New World from 2005 and Night of Cups from 2015. After that, we took a break because I had some film festivals to cover and then end of the year films to cover, and it just kept getting delayed. Well, we're finally back to it, and today we're talking about 2019's A Hidden Life, which is Malick's most recent film and one that I've wanted to watch for some time, and I'm so glad I finally did. If you haven't seen the film, it follows the story of a real historical man named Franz Jagerstatter, an Austrian farmer who refused to fight for the Nazis in the 1940s. Franz and his wife Fanny run a farm along with their three daughters, and early in the film, Franz is called up to military service, and he goes and serves for a time before being released back home. While serving, he sees the direction things are going under Adolf Hitler, as Austria has recently been annexed by Nazi Germany. While home, he refuses to give financial or verbal support to the military, and we see the enormous social pressure that puts on him and his family. He earns a reputation as a dissident and becomes despised in his hometown. Then, when he is called up for military service again, he refuses and he is in prison for it. That's the basic story, but as we've seen with Terrence Malick, he puts so much feeling into his films, and he writes the story to include a number of rich scenes of Franz talking to religious leaders in his community, the mayor, other dissenters who are living secretly. It's also visually sumptuous, as we've come to expect, and it was better reviewed than the three films that came before it, in Malick's filmography. We'll talk about this in the episode a bit, but many consider A Hidden Life to be something of a return to form for Malick. As we have been for this entire series, we are joined once again by the wonderful Bethany Worden. I love the perspective she brings as we talk about how the film deals with faith and religion and its place in Malick's body of work. So here is the trailer for A Hidden Life, followed by my discussion about the film with Bethany Worden. Remember the day when we first met? I remember that motorcycle, my best dress. You looked at me and I knew how simple life was then. Some people raiding other countries, preying on the weak. If our leaders, if they're evil, what does one do? You have a duty to the fatherland. The church tells you so. You cannot say no to your race and your hope. You are a traitor. 
can't swear loyalty to Hitler. I can't. Do you think your defiance will change the course of things? If God gives us free will, we're responsible for what we do, what we fail to do. I can't do what I believe is wrong. Stand up to evil. Whatever you do, I'm with you always. Welcome back, Bethany Worden. How are you today? It's so good to be back. Happy New Year. Yeah. <laughs> Happy New Year to you as well. Yeah, and, and I, I was saying before we started recording, it's completely my fault for the delay. You know, we did three episodes, and then it was Halloween, I want to do a special episode. And then I went to some film festivals, want to do a special episode. And then end of the year, there was I had to watch a ton of things for film critic stuff, and it just kept getting pushed back and back. But finally getting back to it, and uh, so glad to have you back and, and get back into Malik world with you today. Um well, first of all, how have you been and and have you watched anything else recently besides Malik that you want to put on our radar? Uh, well, I've been enjoying that Sundance um, is doing another online festival. They have an in-person yeah. component this year, but they kept up their online component, which still just feels so special that you can watch Sundance films from your bedroom if you want to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've been trying to take advantage of that. They just opened online screenings yesterday, so I've only like just started going through my list. Um, watching a bunch of shorts, which I always love. Yeah, um, I love that. And then last night I watched feature um, The Starling Girl, um, hmm. Eliza Scanlon, and I'm totally blanking on the male lead's name. Um, but anyway, <laughs> a story of a young girl um, growing up in Kentucky in a really conservative Christian community um which yes, felt you know okay. very similar to other topics we've talked about before um really yes. enjoyed it highly recommend it hope it gets picked up um because i think it deserves a bigger audience yeah as i was just looking over the sundance things that's one that jumped out to me that i am hoping to make some time for is it austin abrams is that the the lead it's the guy from top gun maverick oh, okay okay, okay. Uh, i'm looking at Goose's the sign. imdb Okay, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I can't it's remember. Like name it's like Luke something, not, right? It's not jumping out on the IMDb page either. Lewis, Lewis Pullman, Eliza Scanlon, and ah, Lewis okay, Pullman. Okay, okay, gotcha. Well, yeah, that one. So you did already see that? Did you? Yeah. Generally, think highly of it. Yeah, I thought it. It felt lived in. It felt real. Mm. Um, I had a lot of anxiety watching it, <laughs> um, which <laughs> I feel sign. like is like probably a good indicator that it like was hitting yeah. some nerves. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was really compassionate um, to everyone involved and really gave all of the characters a lot of agency, which I really appreciated. Mm. Um, yeah, but still, cool. told a really complicated story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to catch up with that one. Hopefully, before too long. Uh, yeah, have you caught anything else at, at Sundance? that the main one I, you wanted to mention? I have some on my list. Um, I'm really looking forward to Scrapper, um, mm. which is by a young uh, British filmmaker. 
um, I have to catch cat person because I was one of the people mm. that was so excited about the article when it came out in the New Yorker. Um, and oh, there's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're It's about. the mm. one about the, the girl who has a bad date and doesn't quite know how to deal with it. Um, yes, yes. And then there's one that's been getting a lot of buzz that I just added to my list. Um, the accidental getaway driver. Um, yeah, I, yeah. So I was just seeing, you know, here's things to watch and it's been such a busy time this year. I don't know if I'll be able to, but the starling girl was one in particular, just having read the description. I was like, Ooh, that looks like right up my alley. So thanks for that recommendation. Um, this is on the last previous podcast episode, but I had a, a new friend named Ling Tran and she has a film playing slam dance which is also virtual right now. So I'll mention that one more time if anyone wants to check it out. It's called Waiting for the Light to Change and it's really wonderful. I'll just sing its praises while she's not you know, here because I was talking to her last time, but it really is fantastic and uh, very lived in as you're saying with, with the Starling Girl, but also it's just about these kind of um, 20-somethings kind of wondering what their life's going to be and uh, just so well-written and well-acted. I was just completely impressed by it. So that is Waiting for Light to Change. Other things I've been watching, um, this is not a Sundance thing or slam dance thing, um, but there's a horror movie going around called Skinamarink. I don't know if you have seen anything about this. It's an interesting, uh, I mean, it's an experimental film and I didn't really know that going into it, but it played some limited screens. Like, watch and check it out because I'd heard so many things. It's very interesting. It, it really, it's a... Uh, I was I thought about writing a review and it would be something about like can a horror film survive on vibes alone because that's kind of it's so stylistic and so that it, you're like having to really work to figure out what the plot even is um, but it's it's kind of capturing the feeling of you're a kid you get up in the middle of the night and your house is dark and it feels really scary to and unfamiliar like it it bottles that feeling up and I think it was a short film originally like like half hour or something and this is an hour and a half. Um, but it, like, yeah, just a lot of things like you rarely see anyone's face in the movie. It's like just strange camera angles where you're not seeing anything. It's very like it's supposed to be in the 90s. So they have this um, kind of film grain camcorder feeling to it. Uh, and it's just really creepy and weird. I really liked it. I, I think it's somewhat divisive. It's, you know, it's very slow and deliberate. So uh, especially if you're going to the theater, be aware of that. But I do recommend it. Um, yeah, that was a wild one. So that's Skin and Rink. Uh, and then one other that I'll mention is called Missing, which it's one of the screen life movies. So everything is taking place on computer screens and phone screens and stuff, which I always like that as a kind of a tech nerd. There was Searching a few years ago with uh, that one had John Cho and he's searching for his missing daughter. Missing is about um, Storm Reed and she's following her. She's looking for her missing mother. But uh, so she's looking for her mother and uh, it, it pushes that screen life thing a little bit in different directions and it uses the technology right into the plot a little bit more in a way that was fun um ultimately i felt like it pushes the thriller part of it maybe a little too much where you know there's i mean we could have cut about three twists and had just as a satisfying movie and it, it, i think it sacrifices some character stuff for that for the thrillery stuff but it was a lot of fun especially with an audience so that's missing uh Again, yeah, recommend it. And that's probably all I've been watching. So yeah, the end of the year stuff, I was having to watch so many things. I kind of got burned out on movies, actually. Like, I'm going to take a break. Uh, been actually, my we got a Nintendo for the family. So I've been playing a lot of Zelda and stuff. It's like my time filler. But I'm kind of getting back into movie mode. And actually, 
this film, A Hidden Life, I was like, okay, yes. Yay, cinema. Once again, this is so, so good. So um, yeah, let's talk about A Hidden Life. So this one came out in 2019, and we've kind of looked at his filmography over the last few episodes. Uh, But how do you feel A Hidden Life fits in with his other films and kind of in his his work? Uh, I mean, I I think it like very clearly fits in. I don't think Malik does anything that's like outside of his his yeah. uh, his style. But um, I think for a lot of um, Malik lovers, sort of the promise of this film was that it would be returning to more of a narrative mm. structure um, than mm-hmm. his last couple films, which felt very experimental as far as structure. Um, you know, not a lot of like clear acts or um you know progression of story in some of his Mm -hmm. um films leading up to this one and i i think that it does like have more of a narrative arc than some of his um you know last few films but it also i think is still really like playing around with structure and our sense of time Mm -hmm. and um you know how we're moving through time it's like there are some title cards with the dates on it, but a lot of it mm. is really kind of just left up to feeling as far as how much time has passed and um, yeah. where mm. they are in the chronology. Like there's some, there's a lot of flashbacks to like earlier periods um, and also flash forwards. Um, and so I think that, you know, he's, he's still playing around with how he's structuring this film too. Yeah, that was interesting thinking about like the, the return to form idea, because that's kind of what I'd heard about this, which I think we've kind of mentioned on previous episodes. And I'm so glad we watched Night of Cups because I really did appreciate it. And I can also see why it was kind of alienating and why this might feel more um, controlled or focused in a way that that is maybe a bit more accessible. Um, and I did, as I hinted earlier, really connect with this film. I uh, really liked it a lot. And um I didn't know it was going to be quite so faith centered, actually. I mean, I guess that shouldn't be a surprise at this point. All of his films have such a religious bent to them. Um, But that was an aspect of the film that I really uh, connected with. So I wanted to see, did you have any thoughts on just sort of the religious themes or the the kind of the faith themes of, of this film, A Hidden Life? Well, I think this one is unique in that, um, of his film so far, it feels like the one where religion is the most front and center and not just faith Mm -hmm. or like things about spirituality, but like specifically religion um, and Mm. like the role of religion in our faith and in our lives and in our politics. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was really interesting that he decided um, for this story to really like make that really a central conflict. Um, While also still including all of sort of the, expected malik things which is like the pastoral versus the urban and like the Mm -hmm. beautiful cinematography and like still all of those aspects of malik films that make them malik um while bringing this thing that had been in the background faith and religion really up to the front yeah yeah it it was such so front and center that i was it had me thinking about films like a seventh seal and uh, or the seventh seal rather, um, and, and things like that, like these big kind of movies, existential crisis faith movies, um, which I, we haven't really had that, I guess yet uh, as at least what we've looked at in this marathon and what I've seen of Malik. Um, but yeah, there was so much there as he's, um, like you're saying the, the role of religion and he's talking to the priests who uh, there's that one scene where he goes and talks to the Bishop and it 
it's so interesting because the feeling that I had watching it and then we get a little bit of him uh, telling his wife what happened that kind of reframes it a little bit too. And you get the sense that the Bishop wants to, um, you know, has to play a political part. All, all of the religious leaders do um, as Hitler's taking power and, and uh, Austria is being annexed and all of that. Uh, like they have to save their own skin. Um, and even up to towards the ending when there's like the trial scene, the, that's such an interesting one of the filmmaking touches I love about this. I'm kind of jumping all over the place here, but is that we've had so much voiceover uh, in all of his films and we get that here too. And this, there's a few specific moments where we have sort of a, an irony where we're hearing one thing and seeing another, um, particularly when um, he's in prison and we're hearing him tell his wife, Oh, things are, you know, I'm so glad to be alive. All these things like really, uh kind of flowery language and we get the the vice versa with her letters back to him but what we're seeing on screen is in one case like he's being like tortured and beaten and like we're seeing these really harsh things um but hearing his you know positive outlook still on life which i think that's one of the most interesting things about this too is his um sort of relentless optimism in a way even though that has its limits and he starts to question and doubt things as well which kind of brings back full circle to i think just the idea of suffering is is really explored and and i that's something that i've thought a lot about suffering in the religious life and that sort of thing and people who are suffering are closer to god is, is kind of an idea that you hear from time to time and this that's certainly been the case in my own life is when during those periods of uh, going through really hard things is when you start to have sort of existential questions and we hear him and his voiceover saying like, why did you create us at, at one point, like talking to God, which again is similar to like tree of life for all the prayer voiceovers that we hear there. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I didn't expect quite that much emphasis on um, just his, his internal faith and, and the religious experience he's having kind of in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, one of the main questions that this film asks is, what is faith? And what are the Mm. borders of faith? Mm. And, um, you know, does that extend to suffering? Does that extend to family? Does that extend to community? Does that extend to politics, like your country? Um, Just like, how far does an individual's faith go? Um, And to go on a journey with a character who's asking that question in really specific ways, I think is one of the things about this film that feels really special to me. Um, Mm. It's not, the character has an idea, I think of what their faith looks like. Um, Mm. But then I think that changes over the course of the story and it becomes more and more individual as he becomes ostracized from his community and his town as some family members turn against him as he is not finding like support from religious leaders he just seems to his faith becomes more and more and more personal but it has like larger and larger impact on society and i think that is like fascinating um to watch Mm -hmm. that unfold and um to watch all of the like micro decisions along the way Mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's a really good way to put it and and hearing how he kind of explains his faith and just seeing kind of their 
how how their religion and is part of their kind of daily lives as well like we get a lot more with her so it's it's friends and fanny or the the characters and i think in in reality i so i read like a little bit of the history um hold on let me look up the his full name in reality really quickly i'm forgetting it and i want to get it right um Franz Jagerstadter, um, so he, I think her name was also Franz, so like it's Franz and Franz, which is what it's kind of funny, so in the film it's uh, Franz and Fanny, and um, so, so yeah, there's a scene where we're, we're seeing her on the farm, and, and so I think one of the things that the film really, you, you really feel the weight of his decision not to you know, swear this oath to Hitler and, and no, it's not only affecting him. And that's what these different leaders are telling him over and over. Like, first of all, this isn't going to do any good. No one's going to know about this. And it's not only hurting you, it's hurting your wife and your kids. Like you grew up without a father, you know what that's like. And like, it, that's what he's told over and over. Um, and, and so it's, you feel the weight of his decision, I guess, to, to continue that. But then we get so much of her on the farm trying to run things by herself with her sister there too, but you, you feel his absence uh, a lot there, but there's this one scene that, and I think it's Malik is so good at just creating a feeling with, with the camera and not with dialogue, you know, and that's something I, that's, I think become more pronounced as we've watched through his films. And it's something I've just realized. I think he's like maybe the, the best at this. And I did see one review I read of this said something about, you know, among modern filmmakers, there's maybe no one with as pronounced a, a visual style as as Malik, and I think I might agree with that. But he was so just like the the feeling, the, all the feelings that I had watching this film were um, as someone who I, I've talked a lot on the podcast about this, someone who has had a maybe a fraught relationship with my own faith. Um, this film made me want to be faithful in a way that I couldn't quite explain. It's like, this is showing a life of faith in a way that is really making me kind of long for that. And I, I can't exactly explain why there's a scene where it should, they're in the farm, uh, in the, the field, she and her sister and the church bell rings and they just stop and pray. And it's just like this very simple moment, but I found it so moving. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what's going on. And I read this interesting review that I'm going to read a, a little, um, snippet of really quickly. It's from, it's actually a review of Knight of Cups, but it's talking about this Christian outlook in a way that I thought um, really resonated. It's by a, a writer named Damon Linker, who he's actually, what I know of him is interesting too. He's an atheist um, and he writes a lot about religion and politics and how those things are often um, toxic together. But he wrote this review for the week of Knight of Cups. And it starts out, what if Christianity is right after all? That's what I found myself pondering as the credits rolled at the end of Knight of Cups. It says, not necessarily the Christianity of the Trinity and the resurrection or its institutions or doctrines or literal readings of supposedly inerrant scriptures, but the Christian anthropology that was embedded in Western civilization for the better part of two millennia before a post-Christian secular worldview began to supplant it roughly two centuries ago. And then it has this great paragraph I'm just going to read and I'll, I'll link to this too. What does classical Christianity teach about human beings? That we are exiles torn between competing and conflicting ends at once prone to absorption in the world and its ways and drawn beyond it to something higher. 
which certainly applies to Knight of Cups, but I think applies to this film as well. Um, it says that life is a journey, a pilgrimage filled with false starts and moments when we feel adrift, disoriented, lost, that we are strangers to ourselves, unsure of our own motives, susceptible to self-delusion and self-subversion. And then I love this sentence, that self-giving love and not simple happiness is our end, that the path to reaching it runs through self-sacrifice and suffering, which again applies, I think, directly to this film. But just the idea that um, as much as there's a lot of things about the Christian faith I grew up with that I want to reject, like the idea of self-sacrificing love being something that we can uh, it be a higher call than simply living a happy life, um, which I think I read this directly after I finished this film. And so it was, that was on my mind. And, and this, I just thought that was really uh, a well put. Um, and yeah, this, this film just really uh, kind of drew me in, in a, in a faithful way that I didn't expect. So, yeah. That's really beautiful. I think that, um, you know, in this story, that religion is Christianity that um, he's faithful to. But I also think he's like even more deeper than that, like faithful mm. to his values and faithful to yeah. mm-hmm. his understanding of justice. And, um, you know, regardless of your personal religious leanings, I think that like that call to faithfulness can be mm-hmm. to something that's not religious. It can be to a value or yeah. to um a principle um and i think that's one of the things that i really love about this too is he's trying to separate out those that even when Mm -hmm. the religious institution is telling him he does not have to hold to those values there's something even deeper in him like calling Mm -hmm. him to that yeah that no one else in his village you know feels the same way about they're like oh the church says this is fine so we're gonna do it to the point that you know people are spitting on him and his wife you know as they walk by in town and that, that was an interesting just historical lesson like i didn't know quite what that pressure felt like in those in those you know a village where um it's not like there's battles happening outside your front door but like the influence is there and and really strongly and that was really interesting yeah so i I mean my next question was going to be kind of about the politics of the film which we're kind of hinting at already and so i think what you just said about like it's about his values more than his you know christian faith i think that's exactly right and that's why I guess it's like, okay, here's what I've always thought faith was supposed to be, you know, me, myself, Andrew growing up as a kid. Uh, and like, this was a vision of like holding so strongly to a value that you believe in, uh, that like, that's something to kind of aspire to. Whereas, you know, so much before I, I don't want to aspire to anymore. Um, but I'm trying not to spoil the end of the film, but okay, well, I'll, I'll hold this for later, but there's, um, I want to talk a little bit more about that idea Maybe when we get to the end, we'll do a little spoiler talk at the end of the, the podcast. Uh, but so I guess generally the politics of this film, what did you think about? Um, I mean, I, I thought a lot about like when this came out and, and what was happening in the world, which is only, you know, three years ago now. So, uh, yeah. What do you have to say about the political connections here? I mean, I think it's really notable. The film opens with archival footage of Nazi rallies and Hitler, mm-hmm. you know, speaking. Yeah. I mean, essentially like preaching, I would say, is what yeah. Hitler was mm-hmm. doing in those scenes, like indoctrinating uh, people yeah. to a set of values and ideals. And so, you know, to be like immediately dropped into that, the first frames of the film gives you a really specific context. Um, for the story, which I appreciate, um, because then I think it gives um, you as the audience member, like room to ask your own specific questions about your own political context. 
And I can really feel through this film Malik as the filmmaker and, and his questions. And, you know, it seems like he's really asking questions about totalitarianism and um, nationalism and, um, you know, sort of like the extremes of patriotism um, and what is an individual's response to that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and a film that came out at the end of 2019, like in the US, that was a very specific time and context. And we were asking those mm -hmm. questions also in very specific ways. And I, I went and saw it when it first came out. December 2019 was its um, wide release. And um, I just remember sitting in the theater and being like, oh, so we're still asking the same questions that we've always been asking. <laughs> like, nothing's really new. Like, we're oh still, gosh. we're mm -hmm. still like asking the same questions once again about like how far do our values extend and like what is the individual duty um, in a political social context to respond yeah. and how do we respond um, and being able to look at one person's life you know a historical real figure and how they answer those questions it was really powerful yeah yeah absolutely I, I was thinking I wasn't sure exactly what year it had come out and then so actually, this is just like a weird kind of help me place it in history. This was the final film released under Fox Searchlight before it became Searchlight because it was bought by Disney. Um, but but yeah, so it was definitely post twenty sixteen election and all of that. And um, so at a time when, first of all, literal Nazism is a more of a threat than maybe it has been in a while, but also just maybe extending that ethnocentrism and on all of those things. Um, yeah, I think it's exactly what you said that, that it's, it's questioning our, our, what values are we going to hold and, and, you know, how do we hold them? And, um, and I feel, see so much group think happening in, in the film, especially in their, their village. And, uh, yeah, I think it more pointedly than I expected really, um, pushing against those kinds of ideas. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. And, and then, I want to say another political thing, but I think it is a spoiler thing. So we'll hold off on that as well. Um, but I want to ask too, just about, you know, as a film, techni technical things about this film or about the performances or anything, what did you appreciate about uh, kind of how this film's put together? Um, it's gorgeous. <laughs> it yeah. sort of like makes you want to live on a mountain in Austria. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't, I need to find out like where that actual village is where they shot it and go visit it. Cause it's, it's honestly, it looks like how I would imagine, you know, like a paradise in my head mm. and just captured so beautifully. Um, and you, you really, you know, bringing sort of the technical back to the theme, it really is like showing what he's giving up, like by leaving mm. this really like idyllic, beautiful life. Um, yeah. The a sort of notable thing is that, um, Emmanuel Lubieski is not the cinematographer um, on this um, film. You know, he had been for um, several of Malik's previous films. Um, and this time the cinematographer is, I think his name is Jorg, Jorg Widmer. And um, he was a, <clears throat> he was in the camera team for some of Malik's earlier films, but this was his first Malik film as the lead cinematographer. Um, so he's obviously like very familiar familiar with the Malik look as you were talking mm -hmm. about before and the dynamic camera um the characters in the camera are sort of always like moving around one another um mm -hmm. 
a lot of really beautiful close-ups. There's some absolutely stunning images of farming. Like if it, if this film made you want to be faithful, like it made me want to be a farmer. <laughs> yeah. Like hands and dirt and like, mm-hmm. you know, hoes like moving through fields, just like so incredibly captured, just has mm-hmm. such a strong sense of place and um, of the land, like just a real deep love yeah. of the land. Um, and I, yeah, I enjoyed every second that it was on yeah. frame. Yeah, I completely agree. It's so so interesting. Like, it's almost. I'm glad in a way that we had such a break between episode three and four because I watched a lot of stuff in the between there, and then it's like getting back to Malik is like this breath of fresh air of like the the feeling of watching a Malik film is is such a such a potent thing more than I realized. You know, watching them in close succession, um, and and then also the previous one being Night of Cups, which is more of the urban kind of urban centers that we're seeing. Getting back to sort of the the natural world. Uh, but yeah, the valley is so gorgeous and I love it. There's juxtaposition between him in prison and seeing like cutting back and forth between that and like moments where he's like barely can see a patch of sky out the window or barely can see like there's some grass coming up through the cracks and he's like holding on to, you know, any green because this is what he remembers. Um, yeah, so I love all of that. Um, I think the there's what you're talking about with the the camera work and the editing. There's some really like surprising editing i think in a few moments and and like um there's beautiful close-ups and there's also some close-ups that are kind of like harsh you know like there's there's like a man who's like giving a some sort of a racist tirade in the in the village at one point and the camera's just like right in his face where you can only see like like this forehead to chin kind of and uh but he's like looking off camera obviously and then he's like yelling at them and it's such a startling uh image uh, and it holds on it for a long time but yeah, there's a lot of really gorgeous uh, close-ups as as well of of the different characters. Um, as I was saying, just like capturing feelings visually without any dialogue. There's so many moments of that. So much of that has to do with movement. Um, you sent me an article about the the DP, and and there he talks about the the importance of the moving camera, which is like that's why the, the characters are always moving. At one point, it's what he said in the, in the interview, which I thought was interesting. Like when, in Night of Cups, especially, like they're just always walking and talking, and that, that's so we can have a moving camera. That makes sense. Um, but there's a moment like right at the beginning, so we see like the the archival footage, and then I think it's like he's he's like remembering you know the, the beautiful days in his village, and it's like it's not their meeting because we see that later too and because that involves like the motorcycle and everything but just like this little cafe like outdoor seating area outside of a cafe and like she's walking up and just the the feeling of that was so incredible and i was like oh we're just getting right into it and like really being whisked into this uh into this film and this story but there's so many moments like that too that again just wordlessly give you give you feelings there's a couple of moments that it's kind of what I was talking about with the, the sort of irony moments where we're hearing one thing and seeing another. Uh, but there's, I guess it's semi-related to that. There's a few moments where we see what seems like a total aside moment of a character. Uh, there's two in particular that I'm thinking of. One, he's talking to, or no, she's gone to see um, some higher up in, in the army uh, to kind of appeal for his release. And, I mean, cause there's so little she can do. She's like making these trips to the city to try to do something, but she meets with this, this kind of, I can't remember. It's like a Colonel or something in the army. And he has this pretty nice office and we see her 
frustrating conversation as she's trying to do anything and he's kind of giving her the runaround and um but then it cuts and we see him by himself and he's like walking around his office and we're like oh is this a different time and then we see him like screaming in anguish for just like a split second and it, and it was such a startling thing and i i i think what that's trying to communicate is just like there are other people that are not okay with what's happening but what can they do um and so even this higher up in the army this nazi general guys has this internal anguish and then a similar moment at the trial scene at the end where um he's he goes in uh has this conversation with um this man and they i love the conversation they have because he says things like um do you have a right to do this and he's like do i have a right not to like that's a great exchange between them um but then when he leaves the office the the nazi general man sits in his chair that he had been in sits in like the prisoner's chair and like he i can imagine shackles on his hands like he he like puts his hands on his wrists that's such an interesting little touch to see like he's empathizing and he is really beat up about this as well and so like that idea of group think that i mentioned earlier like and not being able to break out of the norm and like look what it does to someone when they do uh, but then also there's like all the there's like two or three other men around the village who are also um really not okay with with hitler which is like a funny thing to say but they 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 keep it really quiet there's one guy who like he runs a um so i can't remember what what his he has a little shop there there's like noisy mechanics and he's just like screaming into the mechanics at one point when no one can hear him he's so upset and yeah all those things i thought were so fascinating and um the way it's shot and and the decision to, to include all those little touches i think add up to something really really interesting in this yeah I also want to mention the score. Like if the camera is doing a lot for emotion, the score in this film, I also feel like is doing a lot. It's become one of my favorite soundtracks. And there are certain um, songs from this film that I replay often. It just, it has this like wistful, Mm. pained romanticism, I guess, of like, being caught between this really ugly political reality and this really Mm. beautiful life that that they've built together as husband and wife and um yeah i mean i can just like hear a couple bars of that score and like tears come to my eyes like it just it just like carries so (laughs) much yeah that's so true so i was looking to double check but it's james newton howard and it was one where you know it's it's a classical score and and i think with tree of life there was a lot of like non-original music, a lot of classical music, you know, from hundreds of years ago that was all used in the film. So I thought it was that at first. And then I was like, oh, this seems like it's of a piece and and then saw that it was an original score, which is, yeah, remarkable because it's really, really good and uh, feels timeless or, you know, like it could have come out at the time that these people were living. Um, yeah, so I completely agree that the the score is great. A few little kind of, film references that you know some of these may not have been intentional but like i I mentioned seventh seal there's a scene in that film with a church painter and there's a scene here with a church painter and they have a really great conversation in seventh seal it's more about like art and faith and stuff so it's it's a little bit different but it it reminded me of that for sure yeah Um, that scene really stuck out to me too because i'm always Hmm. i think we talked about this in some of the previous ones because malik doesn't do interviews 
I'm mm-hmm. always looking for Malik in his films and trying to see, okay, mm-hmm. like, which character are you? Like, what point of view is mm-hmm. yours? And I wonder in this film if Malik is the church painter. Because mm-hmm. he's talking about, like, his role as, like, observing and, like, giving people a very specific picture of, like, faith and Jesus and mm-hmm. all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about like how he paints suffering but doesn't suffer himself and and Mm. like that he paints it in a very specific way to like elicit emotion and how he has like really mixed feelings about that i just wonder if that character is like malik maybe like working through some of his um artistic angst i bet that's exactly right and i didn't think of that as you know that layer of him as the filmmaker in a way but that makes complete sense yeah that's really great um I'm going to go back and watch those scenes now. But another film I was going to mention is, um, this is surely not an intentional reference, but just one of my favorite prison films, favorite, <laughs> the hardest to watch, uh, the movie Hunger, Steve McQueen film from a few years ago. But I, I had flashes of that, uh, which is a compliment <laughs> uh, from me. But, you know, there's a couple of shots in particular in the prison sequence. There's one well, there's a POV shot at the end that we'll, we can talk about in a minute, but there's a POV shot that's really startling where he's, uh, we don't realize it's a POV shot at first. Like we're getting the first person um, view and he's just getting beaten up uh, really horrifically, uh, but it's really striking visually. Um, and and again, I think it's juxtaposed with the beauty of his former life, you know, on the farm. Um, but then another film that I thought about a lot is silence the martin scorsese film because so much of that film is about you know swearing loyalty to christ or you know trampling on the images of christ to prove that you're um not a christian in in that time and it you know clinging to faith in hard times kind of thing um this is probably the point at which i need to talk about the ending i'm realizing again so we'll say a spoiler warning now uh, I mean, if, if you know anything about the true history of the person that this film is based on, it's not really a spoiler, but we are going to talk about the ending. Uh, so if you haven't watched A Hidden Life, now's the time to tune out. Okay. Um, but the fact that he's a martyr, which I, 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 it was a question I had going into it. Like I knew it was a historical thing and I, I was like, I'm pretty sure that he's not going to make it out of the film. Um, but I didn't know that for sure. And I mean, looking at silence as a, as a sort of a counterpoint where um, they eventually do spoilers for silence as well, I guess, sorry. They eventually do, you know, renounce their faith in the end of that film, but here he doesn't and what the consequences are there. But this is kind of goes back to the political stuff too, is that, and, and sort of the, just the complex feelings I've had about like martyrdom in general since I was a kid and because that was something that was used I feel like to influence young evangelical Christians um, like have the idea of a martyr complex and um, you know having like 10 year olds who were like ready to die for Jesus like how kind of yucky that is um, <laughs> to put it mildly but so then here I am watching this martyr story and finding it so beautiful. And I was like, well, what's, how do I reconcile that? And really it is what you were saying that it's, he's, he's uh, being true to his values more than to any particular church or, or creed. Um, and that's really beautiful. And so it's when it's, you know, trample on Jesus in the Scorsese film that that's a little bit like, okay, yeah, just trample on Jesus. You'll be fine. But here it's 
swear loyalty to Hitler has such a more real world impact that um, I found so moving that, you know, to resist all the social pressure that he had, like that is the kind of strong faith that, that I feel like I can pretty much wholeheartedly get behind such a beautiful uh, life of faith that he lived. But yeah. Uh, What do you think about the ending of the movie? Yeah. I mean, it, it, I think that central conflict is so interesting to juxtapose to silence because in that one in silence it's like you're saying like rejecting christ in this one it's about accepting hitler as your political leader which i feel like is like a a different question you know like um yeah Mm -hmm. and the priest and the bishop keep saying like just say whatever they want you to say and like believe the things in your heart um Mm -hmm. and like God knows, God knows that like your values are important to you, which to me feels like an even harder conflict than than the conflict (laughs) in silence. Cause like, yeah, like, you know, swearing loyalty to a political leader, what does that even mean? Hmm. Um, as a person of faith, as a person of values. Um, and I also think it's interesting, you know, it looking back on this from a 21st century view, like we know how horrible Hitler was and what Mm. was going on. And my understanding is that the time they didn't have the full picture. Like they didn't know like Mm -hmm. the extent of the evil that was being um, perpetrated. And you know what this character in the film at least is responding to is the xenophobia and the ableism um, that, he's getting through propaganda videos so he probably doesn't even know like the extent of the holocaust yeah but the amount that Mm -hmm. he knows is still so like deeply troubling and averse to to how he wants to live and who he wants to be and what he wants to stand up for that like he can't he can't even like give lip service Mm -hmm. and like i i will say that for myself like that's a level of commitment i don't think i have like if Mm -hmm. if the choice Mm -hmm. is between death and like you know, signing a paper, <laughs> probably yeah. going to sign a paper, you know, like, and I, um, I don't even know if this film is asking everyone to be a martyr. I think it's, right. it's more asking, like, once again, how far does your faith extend and how far do your mm. values go and, and what parts of your life is that affecting? Yeah. Yeah. I love too, that we get the early scenes So he's, he's called to service before, um, and then, you know, it's dreading being called up again because he's not gonna be able to do it. But we, then we see him watching the propaganda films and like people around him cheering and, and being so excited and he's so clearly upset by it. And, and yes, I love those touches. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a great way to put it. And the, the final scenes of this are interesting just to kind of walk through the ending. We get the POV shot again, uh, which wants a literal guillotine, which, uh, it's true that's like a historical thing which was shocking to me um but like i i like the way that scene is handled like the final scene like the the you know death scene so it's just like the the first person shot going into the chamber and kind of looking around and it's so like we don't see anything violent but it's in a way it's more upsetting <laughs> i think being in his shoes like it was it really affected me i'm just thinking about it um but then it cuts and we see the farm again. And and like, I think we've had with his previous films, we kind of had some shots of nature and stillness kind of right at the end. And then it ends with that George Eliot quote, which is so powerful, um, which I will read here just to rehash it. Um, I thought I had it written down. Where'd it go? I just looked it up again too. 
Okay. Texas, <laughs> I've got, yeah. I found it. And I've forgotten too that, so, I mean, I was an English major. I should remember this, that George Eliot was the pen name of a woman writer. Her name is Mary Ann Evans. Um, and yeah, wrote under the pen name, George Eliot. And um, this quote is from Middlemarch, which I think is her kind of uh, greatest novel. But uh, so we, yeah, we get the, the shots of nature and then it, um, kind of fades to black. And then this quote comes up, says the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and the thing, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might've been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. And that's just the perfect thing to, to put a, a point on this film, I think, and his story. Um, and like, I was already quite emotional, but then when I read that, I was just a wreck. Um, and I think that's another thing, like, just for me kind of getting back into cinema, like this is just a, a beautiful film to, um, to really, if you want to feel a movie, this is a great one for that. Um, but yeah, I guess getting back to what I was saying a minute ago is at the, I think it's the church painter also who says this and he's at one point questioning, are these the end times? Like things are getting started. And like you're saying, they didn't even know the full extent. Um, which again has a sort of a modern resonance because I think there's surely some, some of us have asked, are we at the end of the world here? Things are really bad. Um, and we know how bad it did get under Hitler and, and the things that he was protesting against in this film. Um, but yeah, I think that that's another way to, to, to bring, um, to bring it to a modern audience and say like, yeah, the beauty and, uh, living into your values um and the importance of that but yeah i thought this had a great ending um maybe my favorite just as far as like endings of a movie that we've watched in his filmography thus far yeah i think it's really moving that malik does put a sort of point on it like that because Mm. i think a lot of malik film endings are really intentionally open-ended um and i think it's really honoring to this legacy um that he, you know, for Malik, that's like a very definitive, like he was a hero, like, and, yeah, mm-hmm. and this film is, is honoring that. Um, I think yeah. one of the, one of the things too, that, you know, we've probably talked a lot about culturally the last three years is what does resistance look like and what does mm-hmm. like mutual liberation look like? And, you know, I think for some that's protests and, you know, really loud campaigns and a lot of attention. And I think for others, that's a really like quiet resistance of a faithful Mm -hmm. life. And I don't know how many people knew at the time, you know, what um, Franz was standing up for. I don't know, you know, how many people knew he was imprisoned and for what, Mm -hmm. and how many people knew about his, his death at the time. Um, But that it even just like that quiet life of faithfulness has this ripple effect. Um, I think is very powerful. Yeah. And there's even a couple of lines of dialogue where someone says directly to him, after I think we've mentioned, like, no one's going to know about this. And the fact that this is in a film that Malik is saying, people here, here, I'm telling the world, like this important story of this man's life. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. I think another interesting artistic decision that Malik made with this film that, that ties to this, this um, conversation about legacy is, that uh, much of the voiceover is taken directly from 
historical letters that friends and mm-hmm. Fanny wrote to each other, um, you know, just verbatim from those letters. And once again, I don't know how often a husband and wife expect letters written <laughs> back and forth <laughs> to each other um, mm-hmm. from jail are going to get, you know, shared with the world one day. Um, but I think it's really beautiful that Malik made that decision to like give those characters um, mm. the voices of the historical figures and um, to continue their their uh, impact that way. Absolutely. Well, that is a hidden life. I think we can kind of wrap it up there. I think this has been a great discussion. I'm so excited now to, I mean, I still have a few gaps to fill in in my Malik filmography, but we've mentioned before, but maybe a good time to mention again that his next film is coming at some point. I think it's wrapped production. I saw uh, it's, in in post which can take a while with malik we know <laughs> the editing process and all of that uh, but it's directly about the life of christ which i think is is fascinating so i can't wait to see um what comes of that so excited about that uh and i was looking at the title it's called the way of the wind um which right now imdb says expected it doesn't say when it's expected. I guess they know better than to guess, <laughs> but I'm excited about that one. Um, all right. Well, Bethany, this has been such a wonderful series. Again, sorry for so many pauses in between here, um, but I so, so appreciate you coming on for all of the Malik things. And um, yeah, I mean, whenever the way of the wind comes out, you've got to come back on the show and uh, we should get another series going as well at some point, because this has been great. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, so much fun to talk about these films and this filmmaker I love. And Malik, if you ever hear this, please, um, please release that film at some point. <laughs> I think I think it's been like since 2021. It's like, oh, this year it'll come out. Oh, this year. It'll yeah, come out. Maybe uh, this year. Well, we'll see. <laughs> fingers crossed it'll be soon. And uh, then we'll have you back on the show again. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Bethany. We can say bye bye for now and we will talk to you soon. Take care. That was wonderful, and I could not have taken on all of these Malik films without Bethany's help. I'm so grateful to her, and I can't wait until she returns to the show. Stay tuned. Next time, we're looking at the latest from director Sarah Polly and my favorite film of 2022, Women Talking. I'm also planning an episode about the newest Steven Spielberg film, The Fablemans, and I'm cooking up a new series as well, looking at the films of another director, Darren Aronofsky. So get excited for all of that. And if you're a new listener, make sure to check out the podcast feed to see if there's any other films you're interested in hearing about. And with that, thank you so much for listening to Art House Garage. We've got a few years worth of episodes. You can hear all of those in your podcast app of choice. Our theme music is by composer Paul Hunefeld. Learn more at appallingproductions.com. If you want to support Art House Garage, become a patron over at patreon.com slash arthousegarage or find a link in the show notes. You can also buy an Art House Garage t-shirt at arthousegarage.com slash shop. If you want to support us without spending any money, leave a rating or review in your podcast app, and that is hugely helpful. Stay in the loop about Arthouse Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter. That's at arthousegarage.com slash subscribe, where you can always email me directly, andrew at arthousegarage.com. And of course, follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search at Arthouse Garage in all those places or find links in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free.